Good evening, everybody. Let's come to Romans chapter 8, and we'll start our lesson tonight. Romans chapter 8. I've given you the outline last week, so I'm not going to uh, start again with that tonight. But please do know that this chapter covers the work of the Holy Spirit. All right? He bears witness. He works. We talked about the law of the Spirit of life. We talked about being led of the Spirit. Tonight we're going to look further into to that and also the love of God, which is expressed through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So let's come to verse number 26, Romans 8 and 26. After discussing how all of creation is one day going to come right, which includes our physical body being changed and being the biblical word in verse 23 was redeemed. We patiently wait for that. Verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Right now, an infirmity is a shortcoming. It's an area where you fall short. And this often gets connected with physical sickness. Our bodies fail us and come short in some, in some sickness, some physical way. However, an infirmity can also refer to something uh, in your character. And in this particular case, it's a failure to know exactly how to pray. The Spirit is there to help us with that infirmity. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. If you knew the will of God, I'm talking the perfect will of God. Remember, there are two aspects to this. The general will of God, that is sometimes called the revealed will of God. These are things that are generally true for everyone, right? That we should be servants of Christ. We should love one another. Things that we can read clearly in the Bible. And then there's the specific will of God. These are, these are the nuances, the small details of life. What, Yes, we should all be servants, but what function should you personally in, uh, be involved in in the body of Christ? Uh, what what to, career path? What person should you marry? How many kids should you have? You see all those details. We don't always know the perfect, complete plan that God would like for us to aim for, and therefore, it's difficult to pray. Uh, hold your Bible here. Can you turn over to 1 John chapter 5? 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 14. 1 John 5 and verse 14. 1 John 5 and verse number 14. <clears throat> now, what we're reading in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is one day going to conform your body, your physical body, to the image of Christ. That is, you will have a glorified body, a resurrected body, just like the one Jesus had when He rose from the dead. And then Paul starts, he, he, he turns a little in the passage, and he's going to deal with a different topic and says, Likewise also the Spirit helps our infirmities. So he's been concentrating on the work of the Spirit as it pertains to the flesh and the body. Now he's going to look at the work of the Spirit as it pertains to our daily life right now. And the Holy Spirit is not as interested in your physical body right now as He is that new man that lives within. He's trying to conform you from the inside out 
and make you more like Christ. Now, your prayer life and how you communicate with God and how you seek first the kingdom of God, right? You pursuing God, that is going to be a major part of your life as a disciple of Christ. It really helps when you know what the will of God is. Verse, uh, I want to show you a verse in 1 John 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. I know, God will, I know that there are certain prayers God will definitely answer. right? Because He has told us in His Word, this is His will. So when I pray according to that, things that would fall in line with His will, I know God will take action. It may not always be the action I'm expecting, but I know that those prayers are not falling on deaf ears. God is hearing that, and something will come of it. My prayers are not in vain. What if I'm not praying according to the will of God? Well, that's, that's where Romans 8 really helps us out. By the way, 1 John 5 verse 14, that's the attendance code for this evening. Now, back to Romans 8 and verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. So many times that's true. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. What a precious, what a precious portion of Scripture. As I pray... Even though my prayer, as well-intentioned as it might be, it may be completely off the mark. I may be uh, praying completely contrary to, to the direction God wants me to go. The Spirit of God is not angry. God is not upset. He is burdened. He is touched. And the reaction that you get from that is groaning. Now, please understand, there are many different situations that we could discuss here. We don't have time to cover them all. You can discuss a Christian who's lost his way and is no longer interested in the will of God. The Holy Spirit would react. The groaning in that case would be pain, you know, shame, watching this kid, this child of God, go the wrong way in life, the prodigal son. Then you have other Christians that are just the problems of life or the pressures are coming down and the Spirit is concerned and afflicted with your afflictions. There's many different scenarios wherein the Spirit would groan and maybe a different, can I say, emotion or feeling would go with that. But we know that the Spirit is touched. He's, he's afflicted. He's, he's moved when we begin to pray. And when we pray, possibly in the wrong direction, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. He approaches the throne on our behalf and says, Father, wait. Now, so-and-so means well, but bless their heart, they just don't know. They don't see the big picture. And we need to do X, Y, and Z to allow their life to align with your perfect plan. With They're not going to get there. Even though they have the right intentions, they're moving they're moving in a way that's going to end up slightly off the mark. So let's put a detour. Let's put a roadblock. And we look at those things and think, ah, oh, 
Why is God allowing this to happen? This is actually the Holy Spirit slowly working things out. It begins with Him groaning. He is in the throne room with you. Let's make sure we understand what this is not. This is not a heavenly prayer language. Some people have taken it to mean that when you pray that the Holy Spirit begins to speak through you and this unintelligible language, you begin to utter it. And that is the groaning of the Spirit. There's no other verse of Scripture that would indicate that such a thing happens. There's actually nothing in this verse that would indicate it. It says specifically the groanings which the Spirit are making cannot be uttered. So to think that they would come out of your mouth, that would violate the verse. You cannot utter it. I, I believe there's two reasons why you cannot utter it. First of all, the Holy Spirit is so incredibly touched and moved and burdened by your situation, more than you are, that He can't put words to it. That is what you do when you are in such pain, whether that's emotional, physical, whatever it is. I'm sure, haven't you been in that stage of life where you're so hurt, you don't know what to say. All you can make is a low groan of a noise. You just say, oh, right? We call it a gut punch. And you know, you get hit in the gut, it takes the air out and you go, oh. you don't know what to say. So I, that might be why the groanings can't be uttered because not even the Holy Spirit, as he begins this conversation with the Father, he can't put words to how touched he is about your situation. But there's another way to understand this phrase, groanings which cannot be uttered. And that is the Holy Spirit and the, and the Father, as you're going to see in the next verse, they're having a heavenly conversation that we are not privy to. And because we don't know what they're saying, we cannot utter it. So, and I believe actually both things are probably true. I believe you can understand it either way. There are some times, I have seen people do this, they get down to pray and they are so incredibly burdened about whatever it is that is on their heart, right? Maybe they've had a child that has gone astray or lost a loved one or a job or I, you name it, any number of reasons, but they are broken. The sound of a broken heart, did you know all over the world you can, you can hear the sound of a broken heart. It's universal in, in its language. There are two things that are universal. The sound of pain and the sound of joy, right? Laughter. Now, I, I know, depending on the culture, the laugh might slightly change. Uh, but everywhere in the world, when you hear laughter, you think happiness. And everywhere in the world, when you hear, oh, you think pain. It's a universal language. And some people, so burdened, get down to pray and they don't know what to say to God. They don't know what to pray for as they ought. They're so broken, so confused, so depressed. They just get down before God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And from that, on, that point on, words fail them. And all they can, what begins to come out is this mumbling type sound, which I've heard from many a person. And... It's a low grumble. And what it is, it's, it's the expression of their heart. It's the pain of their heart. 
and it's, it's giving it, it's, it's being vocalized. Do not confuse that for praying in tongues. That's, that's not praying in tongues. That is groaning. That is groaning. It is a biblical thing. When your heart is so broken, you can't find the right words, it does often get expressed in that way. So I, I wanted to take time on that verse to make sure that it's understood for what it is. Make sure you understand what it's not. Now, verse 27, we continue with this divine setting. It says, And he that searcheth the hearts, that'll be the Father, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. He knows, we would say it this way, he knows what the Spirit has on his mind. He says, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Father looks at the Spirit and He says, Comforter, I know exactly why you're here. And even though all you can offer is a, oh, I, I, I know what you mean. I've seen it too. And I'm looking at that person's heart. Maybe it's a soft heart that just needs a gentle nudge in the right direction. Maybe it's a hard heart that needs the hammer of the Word of God to come down and break it. Whatever the need is, the, the Father and the Holy Spirit begin to converse. They're talking about you. Can I add one more member to this conversation? Look down at verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So we have a divine conversation within the Trinity. The Godhead is discussing your life. Now this might catch some of you by surprise because, number one, why would they need to discuss anything? Aren't they all God and don't they share a mind? Interestingly enough, the Bible refers to each member of the Trinity as having his own mind. You can see it in verse 27, he knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Christ had his own mind. The Father has His own mind. That is what's required in order to call that entity a person. Now, guys, this is not going to turn into a lesson on the Trinity. I'm certainly not going to be able to try, try and explain that in one lesson or one, one uh, you know, just a few brief comments. We believe the Trinity as a matter of revelation, right? Not because some man sat down and thought it through and logically came up with this. The Bible says there's one God, and God has manifested Himself in these three persons. We refer to them as persons because they each have a mind, they each have a will. In 1 Corinthians 12, you can read about how the Spirit divides those gifts as He wills. So He has a will. It shouldn't catch us off guard too much that the Trinity has inner discussions, discussions within, within the Godhead. The first page of the Bible tells us this, right? Genesis 1, 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So this God talking with Himself, He discusses things. <laughs> Forgive me, I don't want to run off topic too far. we got a lot to cover in Romans 8. But when you have... 
two persons, three persons working as one. Right? Three persons, one God. You, you have to have unity. And unity achieved not by two parties sacrificing their will, their minds, but by discussing things. The reason I bring that up is because, man, that's so practical for a marriage. The two become one. That doesn't mean that one member of that, of that union needs to give up their thoughts, opinions, and mind, and will, but rather have a conversation. And even within the Godhead, there's submission to the greater authority. Like I said, don't want to, I don't want to run down that path too far, but there's an awful lot of practical application from that deep theology. All right, let's get back to this. Verse 27. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Father knows exactly what the Spirit would like to talk about. He knows why the Spirit is asking for certain things to be done. And then they discuss. You say, now wait a minute, Doesn't, didn't God make a plan for everything before the foundation of the world? God made a plan before the foundation of the world. That's true. You're going to see it in verse 29. But that plan was general. The plan was anybody gets in Christ, then the Holy Spirit will conform that individual to the image of God's Son. That's the general plan. When it comes down to the, all the nuances and specifics, those things are variable. They can change. You say, but wait a minute, doesn't God, isn't He at the end and He already knows what we're going to choose? But listen to the comment. Listen, listen to that statement I just made. Doesn't He know what we are going to choose? We still have to choose it. This is what theologians call middle knowledge. That is, God doesn't know the outcome. He knows every possible outcome. And by the way, this is, a, this is biblically, what can I say, verifiable, provable. In 1 Samuel, you read a case where David was on the run, and yet he heard about the men of Keilah needing help. He went to deliver them, and he did. But then he heard about Saul coming down, and David prayed and said, Will Saul come down? The Lord said, Yes. And David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me up to him? The Lord said, Yes. You know what David did? He left. And because he left, Saul didn't come down, and the men of Keilah didn't deliver him up. Things change. So that's not a failed prophecy. That's not as if God didn't know the plan. The plan can change. Some of those fine details get worked out in the moment. Now, before you see any, any problems in this, think about it. We read about God in the book of Revelation as, as holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Okay, let's, let's think of God in terms of time. When is He? When is God? Well, He's in the past, He's in the future, and He's in the present at the same time. So you say, but does, isn't He at the end? Doesn't He see how it's all going to turn out? Right, and while He's there seeing it turn out billions, trillions of possible ways, He's also in the present watching it happen. Now, for you and I with finite minds to try to understand how that works, good luck. All I know is what's been revealed. I'm trusting what's been revealed.
when I pray, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, get together and say, let's look at the circumstances in this man's life, this woman's life. How can we get their circumstance to line up with the plan that we made before the foundation of the world? How can we use this choice, this problem, this mistake that you made, how can we use this so that it gets them closer to the plan or to fall better in line with the plan that we made before the foundation of the world? Verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now the way Paul states this, to them that love God, well, what if a person doesn't love God? Does that mean things don't work out for them, not, not for good? The way it's used here, right? Paul repeats it. To them that love God, comma, to them who are the called according to His purpose. It kind of makes it sound like he's using the phrase to them that love God as a way of referring to just saved people, which isn't completely outside of the scope of biblical language. That, that happens in the Bible sometimes. If you do take it to be that somebody can be a child of God, but if they're out of fellowship with God, then not everything works out the way God wants it to. It doesn't work out for good. I would agree with that, but only if you understand it temporarily. Eventually, the work of God in that person's life will be done. Right? He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you constantly rebel against the plan of God and the work of the Spirit in your heart, you are going to be miserable your entire Christian life. You're, you're, for the rest of your days, you're going to be absolutely miserable, constantly grieving the Holy Spirit until you hear a loud trumpet sound. Poof! You stand before the Lord and go, man, what did I do with my life? The work will get done. So you can choose whether it gets done slowly, gently, day by day, or bam, all at once. But it will be done. Now, he says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. It does not say, we know that all things work together for your version of good. Not everything works out the way you want it to. But God will certainly do what is necessary, what is right, what is good, what is good for you. If, if a son asks for bread, will the father give him a stone? No, but he may not give him bread. But the father will give him what he needs. We know that all things work together for good. Whether it's a mistake I made, whether it's an opportunity I have, whatever the situation is, God can use that in the plan. He can use that situation to conform me to the image of Christ. Somehow, He can teach me more about Christ. I can learn from my mistake. There's something He can do that will fall in line with His purpose. Now, in verse 29, we get deeper into the purpose. It says, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the purpose that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God wanted a big family. He says here, for whom he did foreknow. Now people have taken that phrase and a few others like it 
to mean that God chose before the foundation of the world who would be saved and who would be lost. But, folks, the word choose and the word know are not the same thing. God foreknew, he, he had foreknowledge, whom he did foreknow. God knew before, foreknow, foreknowledge. He knew before. Before people were alive and had the opportunity to choose Christ, God already knew who would do it. What does that prove? That proves He's God, that He's eternal, that He dwells in all three aspects of time, past, present, and future, and that He knows what people willingly choose. It doesn't say, and I'm going to make up an English word here, it doesn't say He forechose. He foreknew. So He knew who would willingly accept Christ, for whom He did foreknow. He also did predestinate. So He looked at these people that were choosing Christ, and He said, okay, I, I can see who is going to willingly do that. That doesn't, by the way, it has no bearing on the decision I need to make, or you need to make, or your friends and family and loved ones. You look at that and say, well, it's up to God. No, it's not. God has given you this decision. Each individual has to choose. This is why Jesus said, Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Right? That's, why, that's why verses like that exist. It's an invitation. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Why do I have to seek it if it's already automatically going to happen? We have a responsibility in this. God saw who was going to choose His Son. He said, okay, I can see who's going to do it. Now, I'm going to make a plan. Predestinate. So, I'm going to make a plan before they get to the destination. Predestinate. And if, think of it as a bus. That's how I often like to illustrate it. If you get in the right bus, God is going to make sure that bus gets you from here to here. It'll get you from earth into His presence eternally. And while you're in the bus, He's going to do some extra work on you, right, from the inside out. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. So the plan was, anybody gets in Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to work slowly, gently, harshly if needed, right, depends on the person. We're going to make that person more and more like Christ as the days go by. And eventually, on the day of the resurrection, the physical body is conformed and now perfection. Verse 30, Paul explains the whole plan. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. So God knew who would choose. And he knew, he knew, this person is going to get in that bus and I know I'm going to do this, this, and this in his life. Right? I'm going to conform him to the image of Christ. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. There was a point in time that God sent the Holy Spirit to convict you, teach you, draw you, bring you to the Savior. Not force you to receive, but tell you what you need to know so that you can make that willing choice. This is something we cover in great detail in John chapter 6. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. So he calls. You have to answer that call. And whom He called, them He also justified. 
So person who is going to be part of this plan, right? God's, God made this plan before the foundation of the world, predestined. Then in time, He calls that person. That person receives the call. They answer the call. Well, this is falling in line with what God knew would happen. So God says, because of what you've done, this is what I'm going to do next. I called, you received. So now I'm going to justify. He washes you in the blood. He, he declares you righteous, forgives you of all your sin. And then it goes to the next step. Whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. The glorification process ultimately is realized on the day of the resurrection. Right? We saw this in verse 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Right? So there's a certain glory that is still in there. It's going to be revealed. It's going to be manifested. However, the glorification process is underway right now. And the more you conform to Christ's image, the more glory God gets out of your life. Now this glorification, them he also glorified. You've got to know this so that you understand the next part of the chapter. Take your Bible, come to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And this, I think, might surprise some of you. God wants to glorify you. How is He going to do it? How is He going to refine you? Have you heard of the refiner's fire? You know what God does? He says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come here. I am going to use your life. I, the, your story will be told for centuries to come. People will know of the stand you took for God. But God had to allow the entire kingdom to turn against them. And they heated the furnace seven times hotter than ever before. The people standing next to it even died. And those men went in and they got closer to the Son of God than they had ever been. And it was the persecution, it was the trouble, it was the trial, it was the problems of life, it was the pressure that refined them. Look at 1 Peter 4 verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. God is getting glory, but at the same time, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory is resting upon you. The glorification process is underway right now because God allows pressures and problems and persecution to bring the best out of you. What's the best that He's bringing out? The image of Christ. He allows those things. He uses those things to bring you more in line with Christ, to think more like Him, to act more like Him. To have the love, the joy, the peace, the compassion, the gentleness, the meekness, to, all of that to come out. And God can teach you this while you sit in a Bible school. He can teach you this as you read your Bible there in the morning as you take your breakfast. He can teach you this as you listen to a sermon driving down the road. Oh, but God can really teach you this when you go through life and all that it has to offer and you have to live through these things.
then you have to apply what you've learned. It gets very real. That's part of the glorifying. Them He also glorified. Verse 31, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Paul says, now take a look at this plan. Even though I don't know what to pray for like I should, even though I may not always know every part of the will of God, no matter what I do, as long as I continually seek the kingdom of God, if I, if I seek to have the Holy Spirit controlling my life, if I'm sensitive to His leadership, even if I take a step in the wrong direction, God will gently order my steps. He will direct my steps in the right way. So if I make a mistake, if I get out of line, God can even use that. He, he might have to chasten me, might have to punish me, but God is not going to give up on me. God can use anything in my life to help me become more like Him and His Son. So what do we say to that? If God's for us, God's made this plan, this fail-safe plan, who can be against us? You say, well, man, lots of people are against us. The governments of the world, you know, uh, wicked sinners, sometimes, you know, family that doesn't agree. There's all sorts of people that could be against it. Yeah, but you see, the more they pressure you, they're actually just aiding the glorification process. It's a brilliant plan. Verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, the Roman church is experiencing persecution, just like all the other Christians were at that time. So they say, but wait a minute. We're suffering all these problems, persecutions, perils, pressure. Doesn't this prove that we're not of God? Doesn't this prove that God hates us? And Paul is saying, no, no, it proves just the opposite. This was all part of the plan, that if any man will live godly, he shall suffer persecution. This, God knew this was going to happen. It happened to His Son. So anybody that falls, falls in line with His Son and follows His Son should expect the same. God freely gave us the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Don't we rejoice in that? But see, part of receiving the lovely Lord Jesus is you also get... The, the rigid reaction of the world. They said, away with Him, crucify Him, put Him on a cross. You follow Him, man, praise God for free salvation. But God said, I'm going to give you something else freely. Hold your place here. Get Philippians chapter 1. Let me show you what that thing is. Now, it's, I believe it's evident in Romans, right? But you'll see it here in Philippians. Philippians 1, let's get verse 28. Okay, I haven't seen any comments. I'm going to restart this while you find that verse. Philippians 1 and verse 28. All right, Philippians 1, are we there? Yeah, Philippians 1 and verse 28. Okay, it says here, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. So your enemies see all the persecution, all the problems that you're having, and to them that's a token of destruction. That, that proves that you're under the wrath of God. Look at the end of verse 28. But to you of salvation and that of God. 
You look at the problems from a very different perspective. You look at this as a gift from God, as part of the process of Him polishing you, refining you. Verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It's been given to you. It's a gift. Come back to Romans 8, verse 32. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? So God can work all things for good according to His purpose, not according to our purpose. God can use any situation, even persecution. It turns to your glory, which, which ultimately gives God glory. That's, that's what we want to do. Verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So these people that God has chosen for this plan. Now how did they qualify to, to be chosen? Because they chose Christ. This is something you'll learn in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, who first trusted in Christ. The first thing was they trusted Christ. But for now, let's just keep moving. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? You're not going to lay a charge or blame them. Say, ah, you Christians must be doing something wrong because look at all the problems you're having. It is God that justifieth. We don't work by a worldly standard. We don't stand before their judgment seat and let them say, problems equal perdition. That's not the case. God's the one that gets to declare guilty or innocent. He's the one that says, this is a righteous man. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? He says, those of you who, and speaking to this general crowd, those of you that think problems are indicative of somebody being lost, what do you have to say about Christ? Who is he that condemneth? Is, uh, it is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. He says, if, if you're going to condemn Christians and say they're wrong because look at all the problems they have in life, then you're going to have to also condemn Christ because he was put to death for living this, this way, for, for fulfilling God's plan. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. So if you're going to condemn us, you've got to put Christ in the list as well, condemn Him also. But, Paul says, let me remind you, the problems that he went through, he overcame them. The problems that he went through ended up with him resurrected and glorified. And he is now elevated. He has been exalted seated at the right hand of God, which is another way of saying he has the same authority, right? He's equal in authority. Seated at the right hand of God, making intercession. Part of this divine conversation we referred to earlier. He is our great high priest. This is something we talk about much more in the book of Hebrews. What an amazing thought. I mean, literally, can, it, it, makes, it makes me pause because to think that Jesus up in heaven right now could be talking to the Father or the Comforter about me, about you. 
you know, I know that He's interested in our lives. I, I make that blanket statement. It's breathtaking to think sometimes that He's interested in me individually. What a God. In verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Sword is, a, is another way of saying war. People would sometimes... I want to say it's more of a colloquialism, you know, just the language of the day. They would say sword, referring to war, some sort of battle. I think you're familiar with these terms. Tribulation, they're all linking and overlapping. Tribulation, that's another way of saying trouble. Distress, another way of saying stressed out. Uh, a, a, a stressful situation. Persecution, you know, famine, lack of food, nakedness. So poor you don't have enough clothing, don't have sufficient clothing, peril, any sort of danger. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talks about perils of, of the water, perils uh, of his own countrymen, perils of robbers. So different dangers can be perils. And then what happens if you find yourself in a, in a country that's at war, e either a civil war or war with someone else, uh, some other country? Does any of this stuff? You know, these are general things that Paul's throwing out there, but do any of them can any of them separate you from the love of Christ? Can any of them overthrow this plan that God made before the foundation of the world? No. Every single one of these things God can use to conform you to the image of Christ and give you a chance to act like Christ. In the middle of a crisis, you can reach out and help someone. Many of you are doing this. I'm humbled by how our church has reacted. Giving food, blankets, clothing, money, praying, texting, calling, keeping up with each other, doing what you can. You see, these opportunities, these perils, give us a chance to employ what the Holy Spirit has been doing in us. If God be for us, who can be against us? All of these things eventually work to our favor. What an incredible plan. Verse 36, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He's quoting Psalm 44, verse 22. Psalm 44, verse 22. And the thought that he's trying to get across, when I mean, you go back and read Psalm 44, there are people there that are trying to follow God, do the right thing. They love the Lord. And yet, the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel, even enemies within Israel, right, other Jews, killing these faithful, God-loving, God-fearing people. For thy sake, we are killed all the day long. Counted as sheep for the slaughter. You know, for years, that's how Christians have been viewed by their worldly enemies. Paul, I believe, quotes David here simply to acknowledge that this is not a new thing. Right? Some people might have had the idea, but you Christians, you know, you're just this fanatic sect that sprung out of Judaism. Everybody hates you. Just go and die. You know, that's how people kind of viewed him. And Paul's saying, 
we have a very rich history. We have, there's a trail of blood that goes all the way back a thousand years to the time of David, and you can stretch it back even farther than that, where the people that love and follow God and want God, they've always been hated and killed. This is nothing new. So I, I think that's why Paul's including that as, as part of his uh, explanation here. Verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. If you are not saved, if you are not in Christ, and therefore you're not part of this predestinated plan, you're not in that spiritual bus that I spoke of earlier, you've missed the ride. <laughs> um, you realize all these things we mentioned up there in verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, my goodness, it's devastating makes life not worth living. But when you're in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. There are several ways that you're more than a conqueror. Let me, let me explain a few. We know we're going to win before we win. While the battle is raging, while we're in the midst of the fiery furnace, we have a promise from God that He will never leave us, He'll never forsake us, and He will continue working. Even if I meet my physical demise at the hands of my enemies, that's not the end of the story. I will one day be resurrected with a glorified body, and God will reward me accordingly. The glory will be revealed. I know how it's going to end up before I get there. So we know we're going to win. Number two, while we're in the fight of our lives, we have the greatest help that a man can ask for. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I'm more than a conqueror, right? Some people conquer, but in their own strength. I'm conquering my goodness, not because of my strength. Number three, we're more than conquerors because we have the greatest cause. We, we don't just win and get that corruptible crown. We're more than any other conqueror you would find. More than conquerors. Because the cause is so worthy. And then number four, all of the troubles that our enemies try to destroy us with, all of the arguments they try to use against us, God uses all of this to strengthen us and to further us in His plan. It, it helps make us more like Christ. So whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, the plan is always going to work. We're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. It's good to be a Christian. Man, what a blessing. Verse 38, For I am persuaded... Now Paul, is what, what he's going to do for the rest of the chapter here, I believe he is trying to describe everything. Right? He, he, he's, he's using every term, every word he can think of that would encapsulate all that is. He's waxing a bit eloquent. He's being a bit poetic here. We would simply say, I'm persuaded that nothing can separate us from Christ. But Paul's going to, he's going to elaborate on that. I'm persuaded that neither death nor 
life. Okay, not right there, life and death. Doesn't that pretty much cover it all, right? Life and death, that's everything's, everything that you can imagine can be under, fall under those two categories, humanly speaking. Nor, uh, it says neither death nor life. Now we step out of the physical realm and into the spiritual, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. So principalities and powers, it can be a general term to just spiritual entities, but the way it appears here, I am tempted to say angels refers to good angels, principalities and powers refers to unclean spirits. I really don't think it matters if we, if we figured that part out. Paul is simply referring to the spiritual realm. It doesn't matter if it's an angel, principality, a power, whatever ranking they have in the spiritual system, it doesn't matter. Nor things present, anything happening in your life right now. Nor things to come, nothing that will happen in the future. It doesn't matter. Listen, and I say this cautiously, whatever the governments of the world decide to do about the coronavirus, about our freedoms as it pertains to this lockdown, guys, I get it. I don't like this situation at all, but it can't separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is still working. I have been able, I have been so refreshed in these last six, seven, eight weeks, however long it's been, where I thought there might have been chaos and confusion. I have found such a deep peace and, and such a realness from God. You may not understand when I say, thank God for coronavirus. You understand, I'm not, I realize so many people have suffered from it and I'm not making light of that. I, I can say though, with all confidence, I've seen Romans 8.28 come to pass in the last eight weeks. I've seen him use a very strange, frustrating, political, economic, and, and physical situation. I've seen him use it for good in my personal life. I've seen so many people step up and do something for God. Okay, back to this, nor things present, nor things to come. No matter how this turns out, more than conquerors. Verse 39, nor height, nor depth. You can go as far up into heaven as you want. You can get all the way up to the, to the four living, the, those beasts around the throne, the cherubim, seraphim, high up as you want, nor depth. You can go into the bottomless pit, the worst uh, devils and demons that you can find. Paul's just saying anything, anywhere, in any realm. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, just in case he missed one. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, 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 nothing can separate you from the love of God. God will always love you. Why? You chose Christ. You are accepted in the beloved. And nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where do you find the love of God? It's in Christ. It's in Christ. And I can't be separated from Christ. Now, God's love might be manifested differently to me, dependent on what's necessary in the situation. I might need a pox law. 
for whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Or, if I'm hurting, I might feel the loving arms of my Father wrapped around me, holding me tight, and the Holy Spirit whispering into my heart saying, you're going to be just fine. We're going to get you through this. Just breathe. Take it one day at a time. Whatever the case is, nothing will ever separate me, separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is something to rejoice in. All right, that's where we're going to stop for tonight. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have. I enjoy talking about God's awesome plan, His love, the work of the Holy Spirit, and I do pray that it continues to work. Let's say it this way. I pray that you continue to recognize it working. He will continue to work. But might you yield to it so that you can enjoy it and not be frustrated by it. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer. I can see actually a few comments still popping up. So if there are questions, I'm going to take a look at the screen after I pray and I'll address them at that point. If, uh, as always, you can send me a, a private message or email. Happy to help you there as well. Father, thank you this evening for the privilege of being part of this plan, this predestinated plan. You have fixed our destination. We know where we're going. We're in the right bus. Lord Jesus, thank you even right now as we pray, as we talk to you, just to imagine that the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are, are listening in and paying attention and interested. And I, God, what a humbling thought it is. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what's coming. We don't always know exactly how you'd have us to handle things. But Lord, we are willing to be led by you. Please gently correct us. Show us how we can put each step right where you want it to be. Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts for this coming week so that the Holy Spirit can have his way in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.